therapist's attitudes and biases impact the process of psychotherapy, for sure. Our attitudes, our beliefs, they can become reflected in our emotional responses and behavior and how we think about individuals and their mental health. Working with certain people can trigger powerful and complex personal and professional issues in us. It's important that therapists always recognize their own biases as much as possible, recognize the attitudes they have and the impact their work has on the people that are sitting across from them. Welcome to a last Tuesday of the month episode of Shrinks After Hours, where Julie and I kick back and we talk about things in a more casual kind of way. I'm psychologist Cindy Ariel. And I'm psychologist Julie Mayer. Come on in, have a seat, grab a drink, join us. And today, Julie and I will be sharing our thoughts and opinions about bias in treatment, which is a serious problem throughout mental health care. And physical health care too. But today we're focusing on mental health care. Providers are generally more aware of it than they used to be, for sure. But still, we've both heard plenty of stories about how bias has impacted people in negative ways. So let's explain what it is. Well, overall, we know that racial and ethnic disparities are as widespread in the diagnosis and treatment of mental illness as they are in other areas of health. Right. We all have implicit biases. We just all do. That's a fact. Therapists are people. But we need to hold ourselves to a high standard because it's so important. We have to understand ourselves and our own personal biases because otherwise we can't offer the best treatment possible or the best referrals or we, you know, we have to understand ourselves in order to better help other people. It's true, Julie. We all have biases and our biases limit our ability to relate to someone, or it creates tendency sometimes to marginalize even just the aspects of someone's experience. If we don't look at our biases, we can hurt someone. Sometimes we can replicate in our therapy the stigma or the biases that they face in other places or trigger their own internalized oppression, add some way to the damage in their sense of self, their self-esteem, which is the opposite of what we're trying to do. But everyone has biases and they come from our experiences and information we gather through life, some that we know about and some that we're just not aware of. Absolutely. I'm always concerned when I'm working with someone that I could hurt them. I could say something that is a little bit insensitive. I work really hard to make sure that the people I'm working with, I'm sure you do too, I mean, that, that, that they understand that if I do that, they need to let me know and I need to learn. I mean, I'm not perfect and I don't always get everything right. And part of our relationship is that I have to learn in order to be a better helper to them. But it can be painful. I mean, it is really challenging. Exactly. Because, you know, the biases that we have can affect our ideas about who they are and what they need. So that affects our treatment of them, the recommendations we might make to them, our follow-up with them, their outcomes in their lives. Everything. I know. And, you know, what's tricky is because we're people too, we learn these biases through social media or family values or negative or positive experiences in our lives. And it can certainly, even for therapists, limit our ability to relate to certain people. But again, we don't want to be marginalizing. So we have to work really hard to try not to. 
because we're entering into an emotionally intimate, long-term relationship with a lot of people. That's what, what therapy can be. So we need to always be looking at our own biases. So by acknowledging each of us holds on to certain biases, we can and really need to start discovering and, and working with our unknown, our unexamined perceptions, our beliefs. And hopefully that should improve our ability to understand the diverse experiences that clients bring. Absolutely. And like with any interaction, implicit bias can affect our patients or clients' experience and their progress and treatment. It can interfere with our communications or our interactions, and it can have a negative impact on mental health outcomes, which is why we're talking about it. Clients identify across a variety of racial, ethnic, religious, spiritual practices, genders, sexualities. Many hold more than one of these identities. Many hold many. So being able to identify, understand, and change therapist bias when it occurs is super critical. It is. I mean, I know that a lot of people from different backgrounds have seen therapists that they felt didn't have cultural competency or were biased in some way and showed it. Right. And a lack of cultural competency is a kind of bias. Totally. So here's this person in your office trying to get help with their painful situation. That's why they're coming to a therapist and that therapist, not you, but that therapist <laughs> doesn't make the effort to understand their culture. It's disrespectful, but we've both heard so many stories about how, about therapists who are not understanding enough or even inquiring enough to really show that they're interested in knowing about that client they're supposed to be helping. And part of the issue there is that the therapist-patient relationship, you know, is another power differential. So a lot of times they don't feel like they can stand up for themselves or say something. And sometimes therapists don't know why people don't come back, but often therapists sort of blame the person, you know? Oh, totally. Because they're biased and they're not evaluating it enough, you know, working it out enough, they have automatic judgments about people based on race and ethnicity, sexuality, you name it. And that means then they have inappropriate expectations and that leads to bad decision-making. And like I said, bad outcomes. Like everything in life as therapists, we have to be careful specifically in our sessions, not to treat anyone or view anyone solely based on their race or membership in any particular group, you know, whether it's along racial lines, religious, ethnic, whatever it is. That's totally right, Cindy. But of course, we also have to acknowledge that they have those memberships because that's part of who they are. Yeah, of course we should. We have to. Yeah. Well, you should be interested in those aspects of our clients. I mean, all of our interventions have to be based on a multicultural understanding and allow for all those differences. And some are critical among different groups and they relate differently to mental health in terms of beliefs, interpretation, symptoms, expression, treatment preferences, you name it. Something I think can be scary is that there is a lot of room in mental health, like in diagnoses and treatment, there's a lot of room for clinical judgment, which means there's a lot of variation and room for subjective error if we don't pay attention. Right. And a lot of behavior of marginalized populations in general, get criminalized more than because they're criminalized, they're seen as warranting punishment instead of treatment. When I really strongly believe the opposite is true and the opposite is always true for others who are not marginalized. There's a lot of empathy for them 
but there's a lot of fear about the marginalized populations. Here's some interesting information about that. (laughs) African-Americans, Latinos, Asian-Americans, and Native Americans are less likely to be referred for mental health treatment. And when they are, they've been shown to be more likely than whites to leave treatment prematurely. Guess why? It's what we're talking about. And African-Americans and Native Americans are greatly overrepresented in inpatient settings and in psychiatric emergency rooms. And I can add to that interesting information. (laughs) African-Americans and Latinos are also less likely than whites to receive a prescription for medication, including antidepressants. They're more likely to receive injections of antipsychotic medications. African-Americans are seen in psychiatric emergency services and inpatient settings and were also prescribed higher doses than others of antipsychotic medications. So we've seen research that African-Americans have higher rates than expected of diagnosed schizophrenia and lower rates of affective disorders that's like depression, anxiety. Even the standardized diagnostic criteria, like we have the DSM-5 to look at and read and go through, there's still a lot of room for clinical judgment. So providers are more likely to underdiagnose affective disorders and overdiagnose psychotic disorders from people from marginalized groups. With misdiagnosis comes the likelihood that patients won't end up with appropriate healthcare overall. This is so complicated for a multitude of reasons. One is the DSM was mostly written and researched on white men. Written by them and researched on them. Exactly. All about them. It's all about white men. So should it be applied to marginalized populations in the first place? That's a real dilemma. Secondly, marginalized populations are exposed to much more trauma, hardship, being on the receiving ends of crime, and therefore their mental health might look different from a middle-class white man or woman. So then is it the diagnostic skills that aren't so good? They see someone as psychotic when really they're just so overwhelmed by anxiety. Yeah. All of this is uh, discrimination with serious consequences. But part of it is that, as I'm saying, African-Americans and whites present symptoms of mental illness differently and have often have different life situations that make them come out differently. And it's not really well understood. And so, you know, get a white clinician who knows the DSM really well. They might misinterpret a problem that a minority person is coming in with and make a diagnosis or formulate goals that don't really work for them. Right. And if it is somebody who does need some longer term care to control their symptoms, to stay on medication, they need somebody who they can really relate to. They have to have a good rapport you know, with your therapist so that they actually stay in for the long term and get the help they need. And all of this makes that clearly very complicated. Absolutely. I mean, and there's so many things that affect whether people will stay in for the long run, you know, cultural sanctions, you know, like you're not supposed to talk to a stranger, maybe even a white stranger who has a doctoral degree or the stigma in certain cultures and societies, spiritual beliefs, coping beliefs, coping habits. I don't know, the idea of family reliance, all of these things, in addition to the rapport, can, you know, can impact how long somebody stays in treatment. So it's not that the bias of the therapist is the only obstacle. It's just a big one with major impact. Yeah, that if, if that is a problem, all the other stuff is just going to make it a failure experience. Right. And, you know, bias can distort our thoughts 
or behavior in, in two main ways um, that can affect mental health treatment. We overpathologize, like we're saying, when we see unfamiliar behavior in a minority individual and we can interpret it as mental illness. And then the other thing we do, which is also not good, is we minimize where practitioners just ignore symptoms of mental illness and just consider them cultural differences and don't, and the people don't get the treatment they need. Right. And then aside from, or in addition to individual clinicians holding bias, which we all do, as we said, there's also a lot of assumptions that come to be beliefs shared by whole members of like a whole treatment team or an institutional culture. You know, I've seen this a lot of times with other therapists or an inpatient treatment team when they have this idea of everybody, like everybody is being manipulative or attention seeking. And when they think that it's hard to suggest otherwise without them just shutting you down with, you know, thinking, oh, you're being played. Oh, they're manipulating you and you're, or you're just giving in. And of course, all that does happen. We even know there's specific diagnoses that, you know, make that happen more often than others. But when it's everyone they see, you have to question that. I definitely do. I think that could be related to burnout of the clinician, that they're just taking stereotypes to label people instead of really understanding them better, or it's just bad, bad practice. Yeah. And I guess along the same lines, certain clients from certain backgrounds are seen as non-compliant, unreceptive, especially hostile, superstitious, or, or some other thing that comes out of those same stereotypes. And it all leads to African-Americans and Latinos, for example, being overrepresented in jails and prisons, institutions with major representation of people who are mentally ill. Oh, you're totally right. And don't get me started on mental health in prisons, because I'll just change the entire topic here. Because <laughs> we mistreat, we don't bother to diagnose or treat, and we cause traumatic harm to people in prison. And of course, minorities are vastly more likely to be incarcerated than white people a clear example of bias. Exactly. So to get off prison, because I will just go there. <laughs> I hate prison. <laughs> to get back to therapist bias, therapist attitudes and biases impact the process of psychotherapy, for sure. Our attitudes, our beliefs, they can become reflected in our emotional responses and behavior and how we think about individuals and their mental health. Working with certain people can trigger powerful and complex personal and professional issues in us. It's important that therapists always recognize their own biases as much as possible, recognize the attitudes they have and the impact their work has on the people that are sitting across from them. So with all this, therapists need to acknowledge the importance of confronting and managing these feelings. There, there are things we can do about it. Yeah. I mean, a tricky part of it is that negative attitudes towards certain groups can be held unconsciously. In other words, the therapist doesn't even know they have the bias at all. And then because it's not conscious and they haven't worked through it, it can get triggered in the interaction. So patients with mental illness commonly experience microaggressions from mental health providers if they're from a marginalized population. And those negative experiences can lead them to wonder whether mental health care is actually helpful to them at all. Right. And what we know is that the most important factor in determining treatment success is the therapist-client relationship. Yet, just for example, women of color deal with the same microaggressions in therapy as in other areas of life. So what does that tell you about those therapeutic relationships? It's a major problem. And, you know, if you're a patient, it's really hard to speak up and say, hey, what you just said was felt like a microaggression to a therapist who has, like you said before, there's a power differential. 
So yeah, there's explicit forms of bias and that's really bad. Like somebody intentionally being discriminatory. If we ever feel as practitioners that we can't treat somebody, then it's our ethical obligation to refer them to someone that we believe can do a better job. And we're also not off the hook if our biases are unconscious. We have an obligation to root them out, to explore ourselves, to know ourselves well enough. And this is ongoing. It doesn't just, you don't, ex, you know, explore and you're over. There's so many unconscious attitudes about so many groups. And of course, they could have serious negative consequences. And we have to really root that out. Yeah. In private practice, like we both are in, the individual provider is the person's point of care. We're the first point of contact. And if that goes badly, they may never come back to any kind of care. So we have to be extra careful. There were a couple of recent studies that used audio recordings of potential psychotherapy clients to show that middle-class white women are more likely than working-class black men to get a call back when requesting an appointment from a therapist. These studies were really interesting. Yeah. In one in 2016, that was in the Journal of Health and Social Behavior, voice messages were left for 640 therapists in New York. And in all the messages, the actors read a script saying they were feeling down and they had insurance that the provider took and they'd like to make an appointment. But the scripts varied the names, the vocabulary that they used, some of the grammar that reflected race and class differences. So, for example, they used the name Amy Roberts, obviously a white middle class woman, (laughs) and Latoya Johnson, a black middle class woman. And then scripts for working class people used more slang. They used the same, I guess, women's names, but the, you know, more slang was used. So they sounded less classy. All said they had a fairly flexible schedule any weekday evening and they politely asked for a return call. So the researchers waited a week for return calls, which went to a, a voicemail box that was just for the study. What a clever study. It was really clever. And not surprisingly, the therapist response rates were low in general with only 44% returning calls. So that's less than half even returned a call. That sucks. Yeah. I know it's hard, but I do try to do that. In many cases, the therapist left a message saying they didn't have availability. That was the the second thing if they did return the call. But only 15% of the inquiries resulted in a therapist offering an appointment. And they were least likely to call back if the client sounded black and working class. Wow. I also try to call everyone back. I can't always succeed because I get a lot of referrals, but you know, I often have to say I have no openings, but I always try to respond. That, you know, that research is great. It found a clever way to show bias. And of course, that's what it found. Overall, 28% of the middle-class white individuals seeking care were offered an appointment. It's not a great number. It's not even a third, but that compares to the 17% of the middle-class black and of the working class white and black groups, not even a callback for many, of course. Researchers at the University of Maryland found that Allison was 12% more likely to receive an appointment than Lakeisha. Just imagine, you know, you're a working class black person and you really need mental health care and you're kind of scared to go and you make five phone calls and nobody calls you back. It's scary for anybody. And then that, yeah. In addition, (laughs) when someone with a mental health condition is in a crisis, it's really critical that emergency medical providers and first responders are aware of their implicit biases that can affect crisis services. Minority people in crisis are more often perceived as dangerous or violent 
rather than experiencing frustration or fear. And I know, you know, we've all heard of cases where the police were called during a mental health crisis with a minority person and, you know, there's gunshots and sometimes death ensues. Most people with mental illness are nonviolent, but, you know, abnormal or weird behaviors associated with mental health are often misinterpreted as being very dangerous. And that's a big reason why the prison system turns out to be one of the largest mental health providers in the country. I wouldn't call the American prison system a mental health provider. It causes more mental health issues and it usually fixes none and they don't really provide care at all. Absolutely. Good point. Thing is just that stereotyping abnormal behavior as dangerous results in disproportionate contact with the criminal justice system. Totally. We really need to find ways to treat people with mental illness without incarceration. I'm all for that. Just because we have low levels of implicit bias against one social group, homeless people, people of color, whatever it is, we can still have higher levels of strong bias against another group, like those who are drug addicted or LGBTQ people. So we're not off the hook just because we're, oh, we're not biased against those people, only those people. So we have to watch out for our biases to all groups. And all the time, and they can change. And, you know, we're subject to, like we said at the beginning of this conversation, like political influences, social media influences, and we have to always check in with that stuff. Yeah. But, you know, part of the problem, Cindy, is that the lack of diversity in the mental health workforce and those who educate them and, you know, the evidence-based practices centered on a majority group framework and lack of diversity on boards of mental health agencies, all of this stuff contributes to disparities in mental health care. That is true, and we definitely need more. It doesn't necessarily make all therapists of color off the hook, because even therapists who identify as marginalized might have biases about their own group, as we might as well. I'm just saying, but yeah, it's still important. I mean, they well, should right. be a much bigger part of, the, of our profession. No question. People um, who are providers who are happen to be from a marginalized group, they feel a lot of pressure to represent their entire group, but they're just people too. They've got their own prejudices and their own struggles. And, you know, I totally agree. And as psychotherapists, we have to work on our own personal biases. We have to find them. We have to explore their meaning. We have to learn to relate to aspects of ourselves that we might find difficult or disturbing. That is what it means to be a therapist. Yeah. And I just want to, you know, make sure it was clear. Like we still need all those people in our profession to work with us, help us. Yes. Help. And getting rid of all bias is probably impossible. So that's not the goal. What's possible is to change, you know, what we can and learn about ourselves as much as we can and, and just improve our own attitudes and our understanding and better support our, you know, people as much as we can, our clients. Yes. And here's what to do. And even if you're not a therapist and you're listening, you could do this stuff too. Do it with everybody. It's good to do. It is. So increase meaningful conversations and empathy between practitioners and different marginalized groups. Or if you're not a practitioner, you and different marginalized (laughs) groups. And facilitate self-reflective activities for professionals or for anyone about their biases. Like as professionals, we are responsible to do this. If you're not a therapist, it is a good idea anyway. Yeah. And diversifying the community of mental health providers would go a long way in helping here. Yep. You know, the most common ethnicity of psychologists is 86% white, according to the American Psychological Association. 
And overall within other professions like licensed professional counselors and social workers, they're about 15 to 35% people from a minority group. So we really don't have enough diversity in you know, counseling and those providers. And also what's up with psychologists? They're the worst. They really are. It's a huge issue. And, you know, again, we could do a whole episode on the educational opportunities or lack thereof, segregation, racism in this country that lead up to diversified populations not having opportunities to work on a doctoral degree, join the the ranks of the psychologists. Yes. But as a profession, we should be obligated to encourage diverse people to join our ranks as much as possible and support those who are providers who are in diverse populations. And uh, also remember, most people, providers, people, people like you, listeners, (laughs) and people like Julie and I, you know, want to say they don't discriminate or hold any bias. And of course, we don't want to. We try not to. We do our best. But we have to go deeper than that. And awareness is, is really the key. Treat people as individuals. Have humility and show respect. Thanks for listening today. You can find us at shrinksonthird.com. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Shrinks on Third. Until next time, take care.